you happen to have a copy of God's Word with you, would you go to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. Maybe you don't own a Bible. There's free Bibles in the back. I'd love for you to grab one on your way out this morning. You can own a copy of God's Word. and They're really free. They're back there on that back table. Maybe you have it on your phone. Maybe you have a hard copy, but I invite you to go there to Isaiah 9 so you can follow along, and you'll also see the verses up on the screen. He's a good, good father, isn't he, church? We're going to look at why he's called Everlasting Father this morning. And how does that title apply to Jesus? Because it's part of the Isaiah 9 passage that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, that he would be called Mighty God, that he would be called Everlasting Father. And how does that work with God the Father being called the Father? And how is Jesus called the Father? Triggers a lot of thoughts for individuals as they read through this. Before we do that, I'd love to pray with you, but I just want to touch on one thing that Michael mentioned at the very beginning, is that if you have time available tomorrow to serve the church, we could really use some volunteers tomorrow. With a thousand people coming in, you can imagine the amount of help that we could use. So especially in the parking lot area, Kyle has a clipboard in the back, and I would really encourage you to consider if maybe you could come a little bit early for one of the services, that you sign up and maybe be here 15 minutes early and help guide cars to spaces or other ways that you might be able to serve. I'm going to pray with you right now that God would really open our mind up to understand this passage. Would you join me in that? Father, I pray for everybody watching online right now and for our church gathered here in this auditorium, everyone precious to you and your great desires that we would know you better and that we would know who we are in response to that. Many people seeking to understand their place on this planet and why they're here. Father, I pray that you would use this passage to illuminate our understanding. Give us insight into things that we haven't seen before. Give us reason to walk out of here today with a greater joy in our heart for understanding our place in this world and our relationship to you, what we're supposed to do in response to that. We can joyfully proclaim that you're a good, good father, but God, give us a reason to understand why that even in the hard times, we can say that to be true as well as in the good times. I pray for that as we approach this passage now. None of that's going to happen without your Holy Spirit teaching us, so we ask that you would do that. Use the power of the Holy Spirit, cause your word to be alive and to be active now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last few weeks, we've reasoned through who is Jesus to you? And it's based on the question that Jesus asked in Mark chapter 8. Who do people say that I am? And then he followed it up by saying, but who do you say that I am? And the disciples came back with a response. And we've been asking this question for three weeks, working through Isaiah 9. Who is Jesus to you? And how does the reality of who he is impact your life? So we've used Isaiah 9-6 to look at the declarations of who Jesus is. Let's, let's look at the very first part. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. I've been encouraging you to look at this as a very personal commitment from God. For a son will be given to me. A child will be given to me. This is God's gift to you, not just to humanity, but to you personally. 
So Isaiah is urging everybody who's reading this, you, you better stop. You better recognize who this one is because he is like no other. And his arrival is putting everything in place for a final kingdom. And if you haven't been here in the last few weeks, let me catch you up on the background of why Isaiah writes and perhaps you can identify with where he's at. His life is in crisis. His world is in trauma. That and all the people of his nation are going through a really hard time because what is going on is there's a siege. The Assyrian Empire is moving across the Middle East and they wiped out Syria, they wiped out Turkey, and they have Israel in their crosshairs. And while they're focused on Israel, King Ahaz goes into panic mode. King Ahaz is the king of Israel and he goes underneath the city into the caverns to check the fresh water supply. While he's down there, appearing seemingly out of nowhere, Isaiah comes on the scene, and you can just imagine his voice echoing off the stone walls. And he says, King Ahaz, I want to remind you that God is perfectly capable of carrying out all his good purposes, and I'm going to challenge you, King Ahaz, to ask God for a sign that he will be faithful to you. And King Ahaz's response is, no way, I'm not doing that, I'm out. I would never impose upon God to ask him to do something like that for me. So Isaiah comes back in chapter 7, and he says, very well, watch with me. Maybe you've never read it this way before, Isaiah 7, 14. Okay, Ahaz, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. At the end of verse 14, we get the fifth name of this component of Isaiah. Isaiah 9's got four names listed, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. But here's a fifth name. It's in chapter 7. He's called Emmanuel. God is with us, one of the five titles. So 700 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah's writing about him. And this is the full verse. Chapter 9, verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So check this, church, when things are at their absolute worst, a shaft of light from God. King Ahaz couldn't have been in a darker place than in the tunnels with the torches burning. And this beam of hope, spoken by God's prophet, comes from God himself. And he says, remember, the ultimate rescuer is coming. Things may be traumatic now, but there's a rescuer coming one day. So let's bear down on that third title where we left off at last week when we were in Mighty God. Look with me at Isaiah 9.6. And his name will be called, not just Wonderful Counselor, not just Mighty God, but his name will be called eternal Father. His renown shall be renown. His renown shall be mighty God. His renown shall be wonderful counselor. His renown shall be eternal Father. He is the names this one portrays him to be. This is what Jesus is for you. We need to remember this. This is what Jesus is for me. So in light of our really big question, who is Jesus to me? I've got to ask how do I understand him as an eternal father? Now, I would tell you quite honestly, if last week I thought mighty God was intimidating, and it really was, I know it's just two words, but it's incredibly intimidating. If I thought that was intimidating, I'd dip my toe a little bit further into the pool of humility this week 
especially when I read Spurgeon's thoughts on this exact same passage. If you don't know who Charles Haddon Spurgeon is, he's kind of famous, and he lived in the 1800s. And I want you to see his quote, and you'll understand why I was even more humiliated. He said this, We have been somewhat doubting our ability to expound on this particular title. And when I read Spurgeon saying that, I thought, oh, great. Spurgeon doesn't even want to touch it. And then what am I doing taking this on? He's talking about eternal father here. We have been somewhat doubting our ability to expound on this particular title. For there is a depth in it which we are not able to fathom. I cannot pretend to dive into the profound depths of the word but can only skim the surface as the swallow skims the sea. You need to understand that Jesus is not called everlasting Father here to confuse him in any way whatsoever with God the Father. So maybe you're saying, well, how do I understand this then? As far as the Trinity is concerned, Jesus is referred to as God the Son, although there's one God. God the Father is not God the Son. If you're new to church, you need to get this down, but I don't want to confuse you with it. God is called the great three in one. So there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, yet they are absolutely indivisible, but still distinct in their functions. So you have God, the three-head, the Godhead in one, and the Isaiah 9 passage has no bearing whatsoever on the positions of the Trinity with regard to each other. This passage is about the revelation of who Jesus is to you, who Jesus is to me, in the same way as He is wonderful counselor to you, in the same way as He is mighty God for you. He is also everlasting Father for us. So let's just go with those two words, everlasting Father. And maybe you're thinking like right now, like how complex is this? Well, it's this complex in the same breath that Isaiah calls him a child, he calls him everlasting father. He makes it clear that this one is the author of eternity, and he says there's no contradiction here whatsoever. So check this, church, how marvelous that an infant could be infinite, right? Just think this through with me. In the previous service, John and Mandy Block were sitting up here with their baby right about in the second row, and they had their, their little infant in a child car seat carrier, and I turned around to them and I said, how can I pray for you? And Mandy said, you could pray that he would stay asleep during the service. <laughs> okay? Oh, that's right from the heart of a mom. Right? I get that. But check the reality, church. An infant who is infinite in the baby is God. This is why Spurgeon would say this is mind-boggling. This passage is about who Jesus is to us, yet in the same breath, Isaiah says it's a baby, but it's the everlasting Father. He's the author of eternity, and that he who is called God the Son is also called the everlasting Father. What in the world is Isaiah driving toward here? Well, on, on the surface, the very first thing is the complexity. I've read so much on this, I've forgotten who wrote what I'm about to show you, but I wanted you to see the quote. The author is unknown to me at this point, but just watch this. How persuasively and powerfully this should remind us of the necessity of careful study of the person of Jesus. 
we can never assume we will understand him at a glance. But check this, church. This is true. While a look at him will save your soul from hell, patient meditation will fill your mind to overflowing knowledge of the Son of God. It's like, right? One look at Jesus, you're saved for eternity. Amen? I mean, he'll save you. But a patient meditation is just mind-boggling. Suffice it to say, there is a depth here. Maybe it's not true for you, but it's true for me. Which my puny human mind, my intellect, it fails to grasp. And so deep is the mystery that he has to reveal himself or we would never get it. Remember the conversation Jesus had with Peter? Peter, who do people say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. In other words, Peter, you're not smart enough to get there on your own. God revealed it to you. See, he has to reveal himself, or we can't get there because our mind is not developed enough. In the same way, Isaiah could not possibly have fully understood all the light that's going to shine from Jesus when he walks on this planet. But here's a reality check this morning. You can, because you have more information than Isaiah. He didn't have the New Testament. You have the writings of Isaiah in your hand, and you have the complete Bible. Look at the things that Jesus said about himself, John 10.30. I and the Father are one. Nobody had ever said that. No one had ever declared that in all of history. I'm the same as God. Watch this in John 10, 38. No one understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. It's statements like that that really messed up the disciples in trying to get it through their head who he really is. Even Philip was confused about it. And so Jesus had to come back after him and, and correct Philip. Look with me on the screen. John 14, 9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father has seen, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? One last one, Hebrews chapter 1. Watch the declarations here. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. So how amazing is this? This same one who is a child born for you is the everlasting Father for you. It makes you really want to understand, what is this everlasting Father? I'm just going to show you quickly two aspects to this. Look with me at the phrase again, everlasting Father. And we want to notice this first aspect. He's the Father of time and eternity. Both titles fit Him. Why do I say that? Because He's the architect. And here's how you can understand this. And we know this to be true from John 1. And from Colossians 1. We'll come back to Colossians in just a moment. But look with me at John 1.1. 1, 1. Many of you know this verse, but just digest this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. If you're new to church, here's what's going on. John is summarizing in supreme style how God the Son 
put on flesh. In other words, how God the Son became the Jesus of history. And John summarizing it for you here. And stop and just let that sink in. God in eternity became Jesus the man. So notice the parallel between Genesis 1 and John 1 when he says, in the beginning. In your notes this morning, if you pulled them out, or you'll see this on the screen, is this Greek word, arche. And arche is the root word for the word architect we use in the English language. What do we think of when we think of an architect? Someone who draws concepts together for sure, but that's not where the word actually started at. The word arche is this, the one who is the source or the origin, but watch the match, or the chief one in authority. Both are true of Jesus. He is the chief one in authority, and he is the originator. He is the source. So arche refers to the word beginning of the universe in Genesis 1 and in John 1. In other words, it's not saying the first thing created was Jesus, but he's the originator. He's the one that is the source and the chief authority. So the Bible uses the term father in the exact same way to refer to an originator. Let me show you what I mean. We'll demonstrate by showing you some other names of Jesus. Watch this. It comes from Revelation. Revelation 3.14. He's called the Amen. He's called the faithful and the true witness. He's called the beginning of the creation of God. And if you've got somebody in your life right now who doubts that Jesus is God, maybe they trip over this and they're thinking, well, see right there, Mark, it says he's the first thing that was created. No, that's the word arche. He's the originator. The beginning means arche. In other words, Jesus originated everything. He is the architect of the creation of God. That means he already existed before heaven and earth, not a created being. Amen, church? Jesus is not a created being. He is God the Son in flesh. So he became Jesus the man. This thought just stymied the minds of scientists who were in the first service. I expect it's going to stymie you as well. But I had people stopping me in the hallway afterwards saying, well, I really need to process that statement. Just think it through. Time began with the start of the universe. Would we all agree on that? Right? Time, when, when the universe started, time began. Even evolutionists would say there's a beginning point to the universe. There's a point of beginning. So anything that is before the beginning of the universe, you would say, is eternal. There has never been a time when the Godhead did not exist, but there was a point when the universe did not exist. The universe had a beginning point. God has never had a beginning point. We need to get this down because if we're going to really get this in our head, we've got to jump off the cliff a little bit. You think we've gone deep so far, just hang on for a second. This statement of God saying, I am that I am means he's eternally existent, he has always been, there is no beginning point with God. And John's saying in John 1.1, in the arche, in the origin, in the beginning was the word, 11 words complete, and the word was with God. And we arrive at this place of understanding when John joins those two thoughts together. In the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God is proston theon, and I want to illustrate this for you in the best way I can. So for that, I, I need a willing volunteer, and I'll not get a willing one, so somebody in the front row is going to have to help me. <laughs> Preston Granger, how about you, buddy? Okay, can, can I ask you to stand up a second? We'll all have to look up at him because he's like six foot 75. Right, okay. I'm on a step and I can look you eye to eye. That's cool. Excellent. Okay. So how you doing, Preston? I'm doing well. Good. How's basketball season going? Uh, pretty good. Yeah? yeah? Staying healthy? Yeah, trying. Right? Grades are going great? Yeah. Okay. All right. We're praying for you. Yeah. All right. All right. Excellent. Thank, thank Preston, everybody. Appreciate you participating. Okay. So Preston plays basketball for Hope, Hope College over in the western side of Michigan. And what he and I just did was have conversation face-to-face, was with God, is proston theon, the Word, in intimate face-to-face conversation with God the Father, God the Son talking to God the Father. And what we just did wasn't too intimate. I didn't talk about your love life or anything like that, right? Okay. But proston theon... God the Father talking to God the Son. That's what it means when it says the Word was with God. The two in intimate communication together and from all eternity, God the Son with God the Father in deep, meaningful, intimate relationship. And I'm asking you right now, who's the closest friend you have in your life? And magnify that by trillions And you have the relationship of God the Father with God the Son in perfect harmony, perfect relationship. And then you get it. Then you get it when Jesus talks about this in John 17, 5. And he says, there's an intimacy factor between myself and the Father that you don't understand. Look with me at John 17, 5. Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is just before his crucifixion, church. They're just about to haul him away in chains. And what's he thinking about? I want the relationship back. I want to be in face-to-face. I want to be prostantheon again. I want to be talking about the things that are intimate to us. In other words, Jesus saying, I've done everything. Bring me back. And and then this really humbling statement. Finish out verse 1. The Word was God. And I find it absolutely crushing, New Hope. When I think of the intimacy of the relationship, and in profound humility I approach this, because Jesus left this for you. He left that for me. That's why I say you approach this with profound humility. You have to be awestruck because it's so overpowering. And that's why Jesus said what he did to Philip in John 14. Philip, really? You don't get it yet? John 14, 9. He who has seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. So check this, church. The baby in the barn, the man at the wedding, the man at the seashore cooking fish over an open fire, the man asleep in the back of the boat. 
God the Son became Jesus the man. Here's the second and last aspect of this. You have to put that first image together with the second one. We're told he's father forever. So in the Hebrew language, this word everlasting means without end. We get that. Here's the second word that's in your notes this morning. It's the Hebrew word odd. We get the first part. We get eternity. I mean, we don't understand it, but we understand the word, the way it's being used. and We get everlasting. But watch that last part. World without end. Apply that thinking to the very next verse in Isaiah. If you have your Bible open, just let your eyes drift down one verse to verse 7 and look at the way everlasting is used there. Of the greatness of His government and peace, there will be no odd. There will be no end. In other words, no end to perfect harmony. No end to peace. How many of you are going to get tired of peace in eternity? You're going to go like, oh man, I wish a good war would break out. It's just so boring. You think that's a reality? God says it's never going to end. Perfect harmony for all eternity. And check this, the way the word is used also means no end to his fatherhood over you. So as everlasting father, he's not just father but a fatherhood without end. And it's accurate to say he is fatherly or father-like in his treatment of us. So also, it says he is a perfect father. And you're thinking right now, like, what does that look like? Because I've never seen that. Well, none of us have. We may have had a good father, but we've never had a perfect father. And there's very few words of our English language that emote the kind of feelings we get when we hear the word father. Because for some people, it produces these incredible feelings of gratitude and like, wow, my dad was a man of integrity. Or it will provoke incredible feelings of anger and frustration where a dad came up short. Or maybe in the case of a father who was just absent, ambivalence, a perfect father a perfect father is everything you've ever dreamed of. Everything you would want him to be, that's what we're told, that's what Jesus is for you. Perfectly fatherlike in the way that he shepherds and leads. And what does a perfect father look like? Well, a perfect father stays close. And a perfect father provides. And a perfect father protects and is reliable and is selfless. And a perfect father encourages so this everlasting Father in prostan theon, relationship with God the Father, left perfection to come to our broken, messed up world to deal with the relationships and all the misses and all the gaps and all the losses. And so that's why Psalm 68.5 says, our God, he's a father to the fatherless. It's a beautiful thought, isn't it, church? For the 15 years that Lori and I served at Youth Haven Ranch, that, that's one of the verses we taught to the children. Because so many kids coming to Youth Haven didn't know what it was to have a loving father, let alone have a father. So we had to help them understand God is a father to you. He's a father to the fatherless. But put together what you learned last week about mighty God. This mighty God uses all his might to cause all things to work together for the good of his own children, 
And with a forever father, there's no goodbyes with him whatsoever because Scripture says there is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor demons. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to say amen to that, don't you? Right? Nothing. See, that's a perfect father. He's always there. There's no goodbyes with him. So let's just go one step further to draw these two images together here to send you out the door. Among the ancients, the term father also meant originator. We just saw that with the definition arche, the one who is the source of everything. Jesus used the term when he was talking about Satan. And he says, Satan, he's the father of lies. He's the originator. They came from him. He's the originator of sin. So this term is used throughout the Bible. Many rulers in the ancient world were considered the father of their country. The father of a nation, the father of a country. They're viewed in the same way as the father of a family. What did we just say an ideal father looks like? An ideal father provides and protects with the ideal king of a nation for his nation would provide and protect. See, that's where the imagery of the father comes from. So add to that this amazing thought. When someone is recognized in our world today as leading in a certain arena of life, they're labeled the father of that area. The father of astronomy, Copernicus. The father of medicine, Hippo, uh, let's see, Hippocratic, right? Somebody help me with that. How do you pronounce that? What they said. <laughs> the father of our nation, George Washington. And, and we have founding fathers. See, the term is used by us all the time within our language. Everlasting father means Jesus is preeminently the originator and the possessor check this, of eternal life. As author and finisher, we owe our eternal existence to Him as the Father. Do you know you're, you're, you're an eternal being? I hope you know that. Maybe you're new to church and you never heard that before. You are an eternal being. You're going to live forever. The question is where? Heaven or Hell? And where you live in eternity is a whole lot longer than the brief little time we're on this planet. So you're going to live forever. You are an eternal being, and we owe everything to this one. That means if you want anything eternal, you've got to get it from Jesus, because he's the father of eternity. Last thought. When death has swept you away like a flood... When all of your generation is gone, and just check this, 120 years from now, there isn't one person in this auditorium that's still going to be here, unless there's some key in modern medicine that unlocks it. No one's figured out how to get in God's appointment book and erase their name yet. There's about 120 years, even from the littlest baby here to the oldest person in here, we're going to be gone. Our generation will be swept away from this planet like a flood. And when that happens, 
Jesus still lives. Right? He's eternal. So when you're caught up into heaven, you're going to see him in eternity. The image of perfection. No wrinkles, no decay, no gray hair. Eternally perfect beyond your imagination. And he is just as you will be. That's a good thought. Look with me on the screen. 1 John 3, 2, it has not appeared yet, as yet, what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Some of you are more ready for that right now at this stage in life than you were 20 years ago. I'm like, bring it. I'll take it. But there's your eternal promise from God. So even when your King Ahaz hiding out in the tunnels underneath the city of Jerusalem, you need an Isaiah coming along saying, God's going to bring it about. There's a rescuer. So church, when the sun dims in our sky, and there is a sun. I know you live in Michigan, but it's up there, right? <laughs> when the sun dims in our sky and, and the stars have all gone black and the universe is wiped out, Scripture says it's rolled up like a scroll and just burns, when that happens, you will still find... Everlasting Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, is as constant as the perennial spring, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. So here's what you can carry out the door. Because He is eternal, He can be eternally a wonderful counselor to you, eternally the mighty God, eternally the everlasting Father, and everything that goes with that. We'll say Prince of Peace for tomorrow. He's eternally that too. So I have to ask you right now, have you allowed Jesus to be your eternal Father yet? If you're not yet in a relationship with Him, I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to have a conversation with you after this service. And I'm really very huggable. We can do that, okay? I, I would love to talk with you about these things of eternity. You want to know more about being in relationship with Jesus and know that your tomorrow is secure? Let's have that conversation. Church, I'm going to ask you to be praying for those who are coming in over the next 24 hours for the Christmas Eve services. There's a lot of people who don't know what you know, who need to know about this truth. Let's pray together about how God's going to apply this to our life. Father, I sit and stand among eternal beings. And among those here and watching online who name the name of Jesus as their Savior, we're going to be in eternity with you one day. And that makes all the trauma of this life seem so meaningless. Whatever bad medical report we may have received this last week or whatever unemployment someone might be facing or broken relationship, while they're significant to you, I know that they pale in comparison to the reality that we get to see you. We, we get to see you and be with you. Remind us of that so we walk out of here today with a greater degree of enthusiasm and joy 
and reason for celebrating Christmas. The next two days, Father, will be a whirlwind. And yet I pray that you would cause us to stop and process this reality that you have been and will continue to be these things for us. You are a wonderful counselor. You are a mighty God. You are the everlasting Father. And you are the Prince of Peace. And we get to have relationship with you. We're humbled by that reality. It's all because of Jesus. And so we worship you, Jesus, because you're worthy. It's in his name we pray, new hope, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great next 16 hours. See ya.